Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2013 AWP conference in Boston. The recording features readings by Lucy Brock Broido and Ann Carson. You will now hear Judith Baumel and Jen Benka provide introductions. Welcome to the last great night of this incredible literary party. I'm Judith Baumel. I'm the incoming president of the AWP. I want to thank David Fenzer for running a fantastic conference. I want to thank Christian Teresi and Amber Withacombe, both of whom are incredible staff members, and everything that you see here is um, magic that they have built. So thank them a lot, please. On behalf of the poets who are about to read, I'm wondering whoever's controlling lighting, if you could sort of lower these lights down a little bit, they're kind of hard, thanks. Um, We want to thank the Academy of American Poets very much. They are our literary sponsor who are hosting this event. They are among the very first literary sponsors AWP ever had, and they've been loyal ever since, and they are an incredible partner in our mission to bring literature to everyone. And I particularly want to thank the former director of the Academy of American Poets, Tree Swenson, who's here, and I want to thank... And I want to thank the new director, Jennifer Benka, who's a great seasoned pro who's going to bring great new things. So this is how it's going to go. I'm going to be um, leaving the podium in a second, and Jen Benka is going to be talking about our poets, our fantastic poets, Ann Carson, Lucy Brock Broido. You can't get better than that, so give them a first round. Turn off your electronic devices. There's going to be a book signing after the reading, so stick around. It's going to be a great and smooth ride. Thank you, Judy, and thank you, David Fenza, and all of our friends at AWP. The Academy of American Poets is thrilled to present tonight's reading featuring Lucy Brock Broido and Ann Carson. Last February, Ann Carson and Robert Curry led a multimedia workshop on collaboration for students at Cornell, where Carson is a professor at large. The session began with the question, how would you perform the idea container? We can think of this and its metonymic counterpart, the performance or presentation of the thing contained, as a way to summarize fundamental negotiations that both Carson and Brock Broido have undertaken in their work over the past 25 years. How are titles, Brock Broido's self-portrait with her hair cut off, and Carson's town of the sound of a twig breaking, for example, complete, but waiting to encapsulate? How are poems, text, and other, parthenogenic and beyond binary? How do their speakers embody body, How is it that the page holds, forces, or frees desire and despair? 
In her poem, Periodic Table of Ethereal Elements, Brock Broido writes, I was not ready for your form to be cold, ever, even in life. You did not inhabit necessarily a form, but a mind of rarer liquid element. Our first reader, Lucy Brock Broido, is the author of several highly acclaimed books of poetry, including A Hunger, her signature, The Master Letters, and Trouble in Mind, which received the Massachusetts Book Award. Her honors include the Witter Binner Prize for Poetry, the Jerome Shestack Poetry Prize from the American Poetry Review, and fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Guggenheim Foundation. She is also the recipient of the Harvard Danforth Award for Distinction in Teaching and serves as the poetry director at Columbia University's School of the Arts. The critic Stephen Burt has described Brock Broido's poems as works that diverge, elude, and evade. They strive to astonish, then surprise by their reserve. Their heights dizzy listeners, and their periphrases fascinate. And of her book, Trouble in Mind, Publishers Weekly noted that the book astonishes us afresh with the agility and the uncanny will of language, which Brock Broido is not afraid to follow. As she writes in the poem, Some Details of Hell, it is time now to turn off the devices in the wing and listen to the rain. Please welcome Lucy Brock Broido. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. This is a very large auditorium. <laughs> I think there should be Seamus behind us on the screen and some unicorn tapestries. <laughs> and I would feel more comfortable. Am I echoing? Tell me when I echo. Okay. All right. So I want to break the ice um, by telling you just a brief little tale. I have to be really funny because my poems are deadly. Um, so I'm going to talk a lot and read a little. But um, Mark Strand, the, the Clint Eastwood of all poetry, <laughs> once walked into one of our graduate workshops at Columbia and might have been opening day and sat down at the table and leaned toward the students, gathering them closer, and said, you may not know this, but I just ate an entire glazed jelly donut. <laughs> and the class was fine, so I wanted you to know that's not true, but I thought I'd say it. This first poem is called Infinite Riches in the Smallest Room. And I have some things I want to say about it. Uh, one, in the Middle Ages, cloth shapes were sewn onto garments for particular designations, for the very elevated and for the lowest pariahs. Um, the cleric wore his cossack, the physician his purple robe, uh, the leper, some kind of crazy hat and coat, the harlot, a scarlet dress, and the Jew, uh, a circle of wool on their, tun on their tunic. 
so this poem has a reference in it to my tribe of Ashkenazi Jews uh, and uh, subsequent DNA disorders from inbreeding. Also, there are a couple of spiders in this poem. One is a recluse, the other is a violin, and they're both very dangerous. And finally, there are uh, two references in here. One is to locked-in syndrome, which many of you must know about. It was written about in the, in the book, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and it's when a person is in a state of absolute stillness, but all they can do, if they're lucky, is blink an eye. And a fourth world is also in here. Um, of course, it's a corner of the earth that does not even make it as we do to the first world, to the second world, to the third. It's the fourth. But also a fourth world is a desperately impoverished pocket tucked into a first world nation that's nearly invisible for those who don't care to notice. Infinite riches in the smallest room. Silk spool of the recluse as she confects her final mythomania. If it is written down, you can't rescind it. Spoon and pottage bowl. You are starving. Come closer now. What if I were gone and the wind still reeks of hyacinth? What then? Who will I be? A gaudy arrangement of nuclei an apple-sized gray circle on the tunic of a Jew, preventing more bad biological accidents from breeding in. I have not bred in. Each child still has one lantern inside lit. May the mother not blow her children out. She says her hair is thinning, thin, the flower bed is black, sumptuous in emptiness. Blue-footed mushrooms line the walkway to my door. I would as soon die as serve them in a salad to the man I love. We lie down in the shape of a gondola. Venice is gorgeous cold. Three December, unspeakable anxiety about locked-in syndrome, about a fourth world, I cannot presume to say. The violin spider, she has six good eyes arranged in threes. The rims of wounds have wounds as well. Sphinx, small print, you are inscrutable. On the roads, blue thistles, barely visible by night, and by these you may yet find your way home. This next is called Contributor's Note, and it's about, many of you will know this, being given something to write about in your life that you don't really feel like discussing on the page. I also have a long and spotty history with clarity. <laughs> I am very plain spoken. That's funny. And, and legible. And I've been trying for two decades to prove this to the world. Um, it's not worked. So in this new book, I've just let myself go. 
And I wanted, I don't know if Dean Young is here, but I, I wrote him a fan letter after hearing him read for the first time last autumn in New York. And he wrote me back these words. I hope you're out from under the snow heap of tenure reviews. I just got done reading 500 applications. Am I as happy as I thought I'd be that experimental poetry seems dead and gone? Well, after about 200 bundles of poems about grandmothers cooking something in italics and sad little sexual experiences, I really hope for some poems I can at least not understand. <laughs> So here we go. I like talking um, better. But there is one thing. I had a student in a class at Columbia who was getting his MFA, and he was studying to be a hand surgeon. And one thing remarkable about this young man that I found out is in med school, you only get one hand, and you have to really keep it in good shape over several years and take care of it. And that's what I feel that the material for a poem is. You have to, you only get one hand. <laughs> Contributors note, what if it is true now I do not want to speak of that which has been given me to say? See, each four-legged rests his face against the fence's slats and asks no questions. Why or how? How long? How dare you come home from your factory of autumns, your slaughterhouse, weathered and incurious, with your hair bound loosely, not making use of every single part of the horse that was given you? What of his hooves, his mane, his heart, his gait, his cello tail, his joy in finding apples fallen as he built his coat for winter every year. This is called Freedom of Speech, and it's for the poet Liam Rector, who before our David Fenza was also executive director of AWP in the late 80s and 90s. His last book was called The Executive Director of the Fallen World. Um, that about encompasses the 11,000 of us, right? That's called Freedom of Speech. If my own voice falters, tell them hubris was my way of adoring you. The harrow of the hulk of you so feverish in life, cut open, reveals 10,000 rags of music in your thoracic cavity. The hands are received bagged, and examination reveals no injury. Winter then, the body is cold to the touch, unplunderable, kept in its drawer of old world harrowing. Teeth in fair repair, will you be buried where? Nowhere. Your mouth a globe of gauze and glossolalia, an opening most delft of blue, 
your heart was a mess, a mob of hoof prints where the skittish colts first learned to stand, catching on to their agility, a shock of freedom, wild-maned. The eyes have hazel irides, and the conjunctivae are pale, with hemorrhaging, one lung smaller, congested with blue smoke, the other filled with a swarm of massive sentimentia. I adore you more. I know the wingspan of your voice. Whole gorgeous flock of harriers cannot be taken down. You would like it now, this snow, this hour, your visitation here tonight, not altogether unexpected. The night laborers, immigrants all, assemble here, aching for to speaking, longing for to work. I've had three ages in my life. For a long time, I was little. And then I got to be 16. And then for 20 more years, I was 16. <laughs> and then I woke up and I was 36. And now I'm stuck. I have no place, no appropriate age to be um, that I feel comfortable with. So this is a poem called A Girl Ago. Also in the 111th Congress that began with the um, election of 210 when the Republicans and Tea Parties, Tea Party, there's only one, uh, took on the mantle of the, the party of no. This is my personal party of no. A girl ago, no feeding on wisteria, no pitch burner traipsing in the nettled woods, no milk in metal cylinders, no buttering, no making small contusions on the page, but saying nothing no one has not said before. No milkweed blown across your pony coat. No burrs. No scent of juniper on your Jacobean mouth. No crush of ink or injury. No lacerating wish. Extinguish me from this. I was 16 for 20 years. By September, I will be a ghost and flickering in unison with all the other fireflies in Appalachia blinking in the swarm of it, and all at once, above and on a bare branch in a shepherd's sky, no dove. There is no thou to speak of. Two girls ago, no exquisite instruments, no dead coming back as wrens in rooms at dawn, no suicidal hankering, no hankering for suicide, no 1,000 days, no slim luck for the only president I ever loved, no lukewarm bath in oatmeal, no lantern left for Natalie on the way home from school in her Alaskan dark, no eye, no Victorian slippers that walked the bogs to moor, no donner bones with cuts on them or not, no horizontal weeping, 
no weeping vertically, no flipping back your black tails at the black piano bench, no Elgar, no Tullus, no post-industrial despair, no French kissing in the field of wild raspberry and thorn, no commissioned urn, no threat in the table of contents. I'm not dead yet. I'm going to skip this next poem, but I wanted to tell you the title. Because <laughs> I'm really smitten with it. It's called Fame Rabies. <laughs> it's a pretty good poem, but not worth that time, you know. We all are vaccinated, but it's about... We got the fame rabies. This is an elegy for mammals, especially cats. You know when you're sitting on a plane and you're doing student poems or scribbling and the person next to you says, oh, what do you do? And you say, I'm a poet. And they say, oh, me too, always. You know, you want to see some. They always say, what do you write about? And I say, Pets. <laughs> For a snow leopard in October, stay, little ounce, here in fleece and leaf with me, in the evermore where swans trembled in the lake around our bed of hay, and morning came each morning like a felt cloak billowing across the most pale day. It was the color of a steeple disappearing in an old Venetian sky, or of a saint tamping the grenadine of his heavy robes before the blessing of the animals. I've heard tell of men who brought great Pyrenees, a borzoi, or some pocket mice baskets of morning doves beneath their wicker lids, a chameleon on a leash from the Prussian circuses and from the farthest Caucasus, some tundra wolves in pairs. In a meadow I had fallen as deep in sleep as a trilobite in the red clay of the centuries. Even now, just down our winding road, I can hear the children blanketing themselves to sleep in leaves from maple trees. No bad dreams will come to them, I know, because once, in the gone ago, I was a lynx as well, safe as a tiger iris in its silt on the banks of the Euphrates, as you were. Would they take you from me now, like Leonardo's sleeve disappearing in the air? And when I woke, I could not wake you, little sphinx. I could not keep you here with me, anywhere. I could not bear to let you go. Stay here in our clouded bed of wind and timothy with me. Lie here with me in snow. I'm going to close with two poems. 
They both have titles from Kafka, which are portable. If you put them at the top of the page, you get a poem. And then you take them away, and you do it over a period of 10 years. You've got, But this one's staying. And it's really the title for everyone, uh, every poem. I'm a little bit ex hyperbolic, OK? Um, <laughs> It's really a short story by Kafka. It says, a cage goes in search of a bird. That's the story. A cage goes in search of a bird. It's in nine uh, sentences, and they have uh, little numbers that I'll read. One, the animals are ironed, docile now, flat at my feet. Two. I was uncertain of certain mythologies, invisible as the milk waiting to happen to the newborn litter of opossums. Three, in a dark violet hour this time of year, the one-winged lapwing tries to fly but stands still on the stain of the small accumulation of what was. Be good, they said. And so, too, I was good until I was not. Four, it was a time when all the heavens spare used vessels, coffin cornered down a narrow well of hills, would pour out to the open sea like a swarm of mourning cloaks unmuffling. Five, at the inn, the servants fawn on me, the coachman vexed, treats me as a hummingbird outside its whittled cage. Six, an hour in the afternoon of a lark. Seven, there I slept in the gold folds of the executioner's robe, all that fabric spilling out before him like unbundled honey from its jars. I am alive now. It is the first night of the year. The air is salt even this far inland. I wish on a planet, thinking it's a star. On stars you can wish. Eight, there is little left of this time. Already some ilk of lemming-likes assemble on the hill. Nine, it is not volitional. And the last poem is also from Kafka's Notebooks. And it's called, You Have Harnessed Yourself Ridiculously to This World. <laughs> I like that. And there's a pygmy, not that you need to know, but a pygmy marmoset is the tiniest primate in the world. Something you might want to know. You have harnessed yourself ridiculously to this world. Tell the truth I told me when I could not speak. Sorrows a barbaric art, crude as a Viking ship, or a child who rode a spotted pony to the lake away from summer in the 1930s toward the iron lung of polio. According to the census, I am unmarried and unchurched, the woman in the field dressed only in the sun. Too far gone to halt 
the Arctic Caps catastrophe. Big, beautiful, blubbery white bears, each clinging to his one last hunk of ice. I am obliged now to refrain from dying for as long as it is possible. For whom left am I first? We have come to terms with ourself, like a marmoset getting out of her great ape suit. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. Anne Carson is the author of 17 genre-pushing books of poetry, prose, and translation, including Eros, The Bittersweet, The Beauty of the Husband, If Not Winter, Fragments of Sappho, Knox, and the newly released Red Dock, the sequel to her renowned autobiography of Red, a novel in verse. Her writing has been described as unlike anything in the English language today. The critic James Pollock has remarked on how Carson's syntactical interruptions, her rhymes, her sharp enjambment, and especially her vivid and suggestive images give her poems a unique and rare emotional force. Her linguistic invention has garnered her numerous honors and awards, including the Lannan Literary Award, the Griffin Poetry Prize, the T.S. Eliot Prize, a Penn Award for Translation, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and a MacArthur Fellowship. Red Dock has been noted by multiple publications as one of the most anticipated poetry books and one of the biggest reads of 2013, and by Publishers Weekly as a showcase for Carson's trademark sharpness and uncanny ability to make the strange seem familiar and the familiar strange. In much of Carson's work, there is the opposite in the opposite of opposition. She is a visual artist who writes filmically. She can be she or not, and sometimes he, in love with him. She is a classicist who innovates, an historian of the new. Critic Megan O'Rourke has described Carson's work as an exercise in reinvigorating the cliches of autobiography by refracting them through her vast knowledge of classical literature and her deadpan, self-undermining wit. Carson understands personal experience as much through philosophy and spiritual writings as through the register of psychology and interiority. Carson herself has said, I never found it possible to think without thinking about myself thinking. <laughs> Her project of self-study as exploration of the human condition, or as Carson writes in Plain Water, who would you be if you knew the answer? has left us, her readers, wrapped and grateful she keeps asking. Please welcome Ann Carson. Hi, thank you for coming. It's nice to read with Lucy. I'll tell you what I want to do is some old stuff and some new stuff. Old stuff 
The Life of Towns, which is a sequence of poems I wrote um, centuries ago. And at the time, I was engaged in a still unresolved war with punctuation, <laughs> which at this time took the form of putting the periods in the wrong places. And I, for some reason, thought that outstandingly radical then. And now, when I read these, it's so simple-hearted of me to have thought that. But anyway, some of them are still okay. <laughs> Apostle Town. After your death, it was windy every day. Every day, opposed us like a wall. We went, shouting sideways at one another. Along the road, it was useless. The spaces between us got hard. They are empty spaces, and yet they are solid and black and grievous as gaps between the teeth of an old woman you knew years ago when she was Beautiful, the nerves pouring around in her like palace fire. Wolf Town. Let tigers kill them, let bears kill them, let tapeworms, roundworms, heartworms kill them, let them kill each other, let porcupine quills Kill them, let salmon poisoning. Kill them, let them cut their tongues on a bone and bleed. To death, let them freeze, let eagles. Snatch them when young, let a wind-blown seed. Bury itself in their inner ear, destroying equilibrium. Let them have very good ears. Let them, yes, hear a cloud pass overhead. Town of the sound of a twig breaking. Their faces, I thought, were knives, the way they pointed them at me and waited. A hunter is someone who listens so hard to his prey, it pulls the weapon out of his hand and impales itself. A town I have heard of in the middle of nowhere. Where would that be? Nice and quiet? A rabbit hopping across. Nothing on the stove. Town of my farewell to you. Look what a thousand blue, thousand white, thousand blue, thousand white, thousand. Blue thousand, white thousand, blue thousand. White thousand, blue wind today and two arms blowing down the road. New stuff. <laughs> I have a friend in California named Kim Ano. She's a painter, visual artist, and we wanted to work on a project together, so we decided it would be a book. 
and that it would be a book about sleep. So I was casting about in my mind for how to approach this. And it seemed to me that by far the most provocative sleeper we have in the Western tradition is Albertine, the girl in Proust, you know, in search of lost time or remembrance of time past or whatever we call his endless novel. There's a girlfriend in it and her name is Albertine. So I did a bunch of research on Albertine and wrote up my research in 59 paragraphs, which I numbered. And we'll read to you. I number paragraphs for two reasons. One, it makes me feel like Wittgenstein. And <laughs> two, at a longish reading like this, somewhat late at night, for persons like yourselves, to hear the paragraphs zipping by with numbers, 16, 17, 18, gives a sensation of hope. It will end. The Albertine Workout. One, Albertine, the name, is not a common name for a girl in France, although Albert is widespread for a boy. Two, Albertine's name occurs 2,363 times in Proust's novel more than any other character. Three, Albertine herself is present or mentioned on 807 pages of Proust's novel. Four, on a good 19% of these pages, she is asleep. <laughs> Five, Albertine is believed by some critics, including André Gide, to be a disguised version of Proust's chauffeur, Alfred Agostinelli. This is called the transposition theory. Six, Albertine constitutes a romantic, psychosexual, and moral obsession for the narrator of the novel, mainly throughout volume five of Proust's seven volume in the Pleiad edition work. Seven, volume five is called La Prisonnière in French and The Captive in English. It was declared by Roger Shattuck, a world expert on Proust, in his award-winning 1974 study, to be the one volume of the novel that a time-pressed reader may safely and entirely skip. <laughs> Eight. The problems of Albertine are, from the narrator's point of view, A, lying, B, lesbianism. And from Albertine's point of view, A, being imprisoned in the narrator's house. <laughs> Nine, her bad taste in music, although several times remarked on, is not a problem. 10, Albertine does not call the narrator by his name anywhere in the novel, nor does anyone else. The narrator hints that his first name might be the same first name as that of the author of the novel, that is, Marcel. Let's go with that. <laughs> 11. 
Albertine denies she is a lesbian when Marcel questions her. Twelve, her friends are all lesbians. Thirteen, her denials fascinate him. Fourteen, her friends fascinate him too, especially by their contrast with his friends, who are gay but very closeted. Her friends parade themselves at the beach and kiss in restaurants. Fifteen. Despite intense and assiduous questioning, Marcel cannot discover what exactly it is that women do together. This palpitating specificity of female pleasure, as he calls it. Sixteen. Albertine says she does not know. Seventeen. Once Albertine has been imprisoned by Marcel in his house, his feelings change. It was her freedom that first attracted him, the way the wind billowed in her garments. This attraction is now replaced by a feeling of ennui, boredom. She becomes, as he says, a heavy slave of the house. 18. This is predictable given Marcel's theory of desire which equates possession of another person with erasure of the otherness of her mind, while at the same time positing otherness as what makes another person desirable. 19. And in point of fact, how can he possess her mind if she is a lesbian? 20. His fascination continues. <laughs> 21. Albertine is a girl in a flat sports cap pushing her bicycle across the beach when Marcel first sees her. He keeps going back to this image. 22. Albertine has no family, profession, or prospects. She is soon installed, indeed captive, in Marcel's house. There she has a separate bedroom. He emphasizes that she is nonetheless an obedient person. See above on Albertine as heavy slave. 23. Albertine's face is sweet and beautiful from the front, but from the side has a hook-nosed aspect that fills Marcel with horror. He would take her face in his hands and reposition it. 24. The state of Albertine that most pleases Marcel is Albertine asleep. 25. By falling asleep, she becomes a plant, he says. 26. Plants do not actually sleep, nor do they lie or even bluff. They do, however, expose their genitalia. 27a. Sometimes in her sleep, Albertine throws off her kimono and lies naked. 27b. Sometimes, then, Marcel possesses her. 27C, Albertine appears not to wake up. 28, Marcel appears to think he is the master of such moments. 29, perhaps he is. At this point, parenthetically, if we had time, several observations could be made about the similarity between Albertine and Ophelia. Hamlet's Ophelia, starting from the sexual life of plants, which Proust and Shakespeare equally enjoy using as a language of female desire. 
Albertine, like Ophelia, embodies for her lover blooming girlhood and also castration, casualty, threat, and pure obstacle. Albertine, like Ophelia, is condemned for a voracious sexual appetite whose expression is denied her. Ophelia takes sexual appetite into the river and drowns it amid water plants. Albertine distorts hers into the false consciousness of a sleep plant. In both scenarios, the man appears to be in control of the script, yet he gets himself tangled up in the wiles of the woman. On the other hand, who is bluffing whom is hard to say. 30. Albertine's laugh has the color and smell of a geranium. 31. Marcel gives Albertine the idea that he intends to marry her, but he does not. She bores him. 32. Albertine's eyes are blue and saucy. Her hair is like crinkly black violets. 33. Albertine's behavior in Marcel's household is that of a domestic animal, which enters any door it finds open or comes to lie beside its master on his bed, making a place for itself. Marcel has to train Albertine not to come into his room until he rings for her. 34. Marcel gradually manages to separate Albertine from all her friends, whom he regards as evil influences. 35. Marcel never says the word lesbian to Albertine. He says, the kind of woman I object to. 36. Albertine denies she knows any such women. Marcel assumes she is lying. 37. At first, Albertine has no individuality at all. Indeed, Marcel cannot distinguish her from her girlfriends or remember their names or decide which of them to pursue. They form a freeze in his mind, pushing their bicycles across the beach with the blue waves breaking behind them. 38. This pictorial multiplicity of Albertine evolves gradually into a plastic and moral multiplicity. Albertine is not a solid object. She is unknowable. When he brings his face close to hers to kiss, she is ten different Albertines in succession. 39. One night Albertine goes dancing with a girlfriend at the casino. 40. When questioned about this, she lies. 41. Albertine is not a natural liar. 42. Albertine lies so much and so badly that Marcel is drawn into the game. He lies too. 43. Marcel's jealousy, impotence, and desire are all exasperated to their highest pitch by the game. 44. Who is bluffing whom is hard to say. See above on Hamlet. 45. Near the end of volume five, Albertine finally runs away, vanishing into the night and leaving the window open. Marcel fusses and fumes and writes her a letter in which he claims he had just decided to buy her a yacht and a Rolls Royce when she disappeared. Now he will have to cancel these orders. 
The yacht had a price tag of 27,000 francs, about $75,000, and was to be engraved at the prow with her favorite stanza of a poem by Mallarmé. 46. Albertine's death in a riding accident on page 642 of volume 5 does not emancipate Marcel from jealousy. It removes only one of the innumerable Albertines he would have to forget. The jealous lover cannot rest until he is able to touch all the points in space and time ever occupied by the beloved. 47. There is no right or wrong in Proust, says Samuel Beckett, and I believe it. The bluffing, however, remains a gray area. 48. Let's return to the transposition theory. 49. On May 30th, 1914, French newspapers reported that Alfred Agostinelli, a student aviator, fell from his machine into the Mediterranean Sea near Antibes and was drowned. Agostinelli, you recall, was the chauffeur whom Proust, in letters to friends, admitted that he not only loved, but adored. Proust had bought Alfred his aeroplane, which cost 27,000 francs, about $75,000, and had had it engraved on the fuselage with a stanza of Mallarmé. Proust also paid for Alfred's flying lessons and registered him at the flying school under the name Marcel Swan. The flying school was in Monaco. In order to spy on Alfred while he was there, Proust sent another favorite manservant whose name was Albert. 50. Compare and contrast Albertine's sudden fictional death by runaway horse with Alfred Agostinelli's sudden real-life death by runaway plane. Poignantly, both unfortunate beloveds managed to speak to his or her lover from the wild blue yonder. Agostinelli, before setting out for his final flight, had written a long letter which Proust was heartbroken to receive the day after the plane crash. When transposed to the novel, this exit scene becomes one of the weirdest in fiction. 51. Several weeks after accepting the news that Albertine has been thrown from her horse and killed, Marcel receives a telegram. You think me dead, but I'm alive and long to see you. Affectionately, Albertine. Marcel agonizes for days about this telegram and debates with himself whether he should resume relations with Albertine or not, only to realize that the signature on the telegram has been misread by the telegraph operator. It is not a telegram from Albertine at all, but from another long-lost girlfriend whose name, Gilbert, shares its central letters with Albertine's name. 52. One only loves that which one does not entirely possess, says Marcel. 53. There are four ways Albertine is able to avoid becoming entirely possessed, by sleeping, by lying, by being a lesbian, and by being dead. 54. 
Only the first three of these can she bluff. 55. Proust was still correcting a typescript of La Prisonniere on his deathbed, November 1922. He was fine-tuning the character of Albertine and working into her speech certain phrases from Alfred Agostinelli's final letter. 56. Isn't it always a tricky thing, the question whether to read an author's work in light of his life or not? 57. Granted, the transposition theory is a graceless, intrusive, and saddening hermeneutic mechanism. In the case of Proust, it is also irresistible. Here is one final spark to be struck from rubbing Alfred against Albertine, as it were. Let's consider the stanza of poetry that Proust had inscribed on the fuselage of Alfred's plane the same verse that Marcel promises to engrave on the prow of Albertine's yacht from her favorite poem, he says. It is four verses of Mallarmé about a swan that finds itself frozen into the ice of a lake in winter. Swans are, of course, migratory birds. This one, for some reason, failed to fly off with its fellow swans when the time came. What a weird and lonely shadow to cast on these two love affairs, the fictional and the real. What a desperate analogy to offer of the lover's final wintry paranoia of possession. As Hamlet says to Ophelia, accurately but ruthlessly, you should not have believed me. 58. Here is the stanza of Mallarmé in rudimentary English. A swan of olden times remembers that it is he, the one magnificent but without hope of setting himself free, for he failed to sing of a region for living when barren winter burned all around him with ennui. 59. Everything, indeed, is at least Double. La Prisonnière, page 362. Thank you. Thank you again to our readers, Lucy and Anne, and thank you all for coming. Please do buy their books right outside. Good night. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.